Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to look at what is a shocking event. It, it really is. It's a, it's, a, it's a shocking event, but it's, there's a powerful lesson here. There's a powerful lesson that the Lord has for us if we'll open our hearts to it. So God, would you open our spiritual ears to hear your voice, our eyes to see the things of God, to, to understand in faith, and a heart, Lord, that receives joyfully your word and allows you with that beautiful two-edged sword of yours to, to cut us in freeing us and healing us and making us strong. I ask for that first of all, and we receive it together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. We'll start at Acts chapter 4. We'll read at verse 36 and go down to chapter 5, verse 11. Now Joseph... A Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed in an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And they, Luke uses the word expired. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard these things. <laughs> what we're seeing in this remarkable event is God disciplining his church. He's revealing his standard of holiness and showing us the danger of hypocrisy. What may seem to us to be a small, insignificant sin, a lie told about an amount of money being given as a gift, we discover was viewed by God as an alarming spiritual danger which had to be removed immediately. Clearly, in his mind, there was no room in the church for this level of hypocrisy, for hearts that only pretended to love him for people willing to lie to the Holy Spirit. In this dramatic encounter, God reveals the need for church discipline. He shows us what to discipline, and that discipline ought to be done quickly, which of course doesn't mean hypocrites must die. 
This particular couple's death was a divine act which God in his infinite wisdom chose to perform in order to protect this young church and to teach succeeding generations a lesson that wouldn't be forgotten. Let's rehear that story a bit so we understand it. First of all, starting with Barnabas. In order to show us how costly such donations were for some, Luke tells us about a Levitical priest from Cyprus named Joseph. To begin with, for a Levitical priest to be baptized in Jesus' name was a huge sacrifice in itself. Given the hostility of the high priest and the Sanhedrin that they were showing toward the church, this must have meant the end of his privileges and service. As a tribe, Levites were entitled to receive support from the tithes of, of the people. And because of this, the tribe was not allowed to own land within its, the borders of Israel. This means the field Joseph sold was probably located near his home on the island of Cyprus. In fact, it may have been his portion of the family estate. Okay, so this is, Joseph is his real name. Barnabas is his nickname. And, and notice he's a Levite. He's a Levitical priest. This was the verse that told me who wrote Hebrews. It is. I read that and I got, that's who it is. To have a Levite join the church would have been a notable event. Here was a man of high status and education who had lived a privileged life, yet who was giving up all those things to follow Christ. Not only would he forfeit the financial support he was entitled to receive as a Levite, But now we're told he sold off a field he owned, which must have severely reduced, if not eliminated, any financial security he had left. When reading this passage, we shouldn't overlook the amazing humility being expressed by this Levite as he placed his gift at the feet of the apostles. This educated priest was gladly submitting himself to the leadership of a group of men who were uneducated Galileans. You see this? What a, what a picture. Here's a Levite. He's been educated. He, he lives off the tithe of, of the nation. He has a, he has a lifetime support system. Uh, he is an elite. And not only, does he, not only does he lose all of that and come out and, be, and become baptized, and by the way, many more priests would do so, the tremendous giving, the, 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 the way the church said, you lose your job, you lose everything, we take you up. So you have here, here you have a, a, a Levite, but you have this educated man coming and, and submitting himself and submitting this, maybe his, his last financial base to this group of Galilean fishermen. Goodness gracious, what a, what a humility. All right, with that as, one, as the background, we now switch to Ananias and Sapphira. From the remarkable generosity of Barnabas, Luke now turns to the deceptive selfishness of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They too sold a piece of property, but for reasons that aren't clear, agreed to secretly keep a portion of the revenue for themselves. When they laid their gift at the feet of the apostles, they lied and said this was the full amount of the sale. We can only guess at their motives because the church did not require them to give any gift at all. Had they wished to keep the entire amount, they would have been free to do so. They may have been seeking to be admired for their generosity, or possibly they were positioning themselves so they could be supported by the church's benevolent fund in the future. Regardless of the goal, their action was selfish, 
But selfishness is not a sin which, pardon me, it is a sin which afflicts most of us. Yet thankfully, God doesn't strike us dead for it. Anybody glad about that? It wasn't their selfishness that God chose to discipline. It was their lie. What did he discipline? Yeah, their lie. Peter, who had become very sensitive to the leading of the Spirit, knew by a word of knowledge what they had done and confronted Ananias. Ananias had come without his wife to present the gift, and no sooner did he give it and say whatever he said to leave the impression that this was the total amount, then Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and steal that's the word he uses. It's a word that means to purloin, to, 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 to sneak, sneaky stealing, uh, steal from the price of the land. Even the wording of this question was prophetically inspired. Peter identified Satan as the source of the lie. He exposed Ananias' heart and showed that it was filled with this lie. Notice that, will you? That's, that's no accident. And he warned him that the arrogance which had dared speak such a lie before the church had offended the Holy Spirit. Peter marveled that Ananias thought he could lie in the midst of that intense spiritual environment and go undetected. Did he think God didn't see what he'd done? Did he he think God would do nothing? It was as though he was challenging God to respond. Peter did not issue a verdict or announce any form of judgment. Please notice that. Peter doesn't pronounce something on the guy. He simply asked a question, and then God miraculously stepped in with a level of discipline which shocks us. No sooner did Ananias hear Peter's words than he collapsed and died. There has been much speculation on whether or not his death was caused by a heart attack brought on by the trauma of being suddenly exposed. Such reasoning is an attempt to supply a natural, non-miraculous cause for the death. It assumes that here is an unhealthy man who, when embarrassed publicly, had a heart attack and died. But this explanation loses credibility when Ananias' wife, Sapphira, comes into the church gathering three hours later. Unaware of her husband's death, she's asked by Peter, tell me whether for such and such a price you sold the land. And after answering yes, indicating she was a knowing accomplice in the deception, she too collapsed and died. To claim that both died of natural causes seems to require a stubborn refusal to see the obvious, which is that this is a divine act of judgment in which God took their lives. Do you see that? That's my conclusion. Peter asks Sapphira, why is it that you agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? And once again, functioning in a word of knowledge, he announced, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out as well. Then immediately she too collapsed and was taken out and buried beside her husband. One final observation we should mention concerning their death is that it seems unusual for two Jewish people to die and be buried without any family reaction or participation. Can you see my point? I mean, if you came to church one day and and you died here on the spot and we took you out and and buried you out here somewhere in the the, uh, bark... uh, (laughs) At some point, wouldn't your family wonder where you were and and come looking for you and going, where are you? Oh, well, they died and we buried them. They're right over here. I mean, that's odd, isn't it? This whole thing is odd. Both of them. I mean, and they take her her out and they they bury her. Uh, there's, There's something missing here. You would have thought that the young men would have Uh, carried their bodies home, not taken them out and buried them. 
The apparent absence of any formal burial ceremony or ritualized mourning is odd. Either they were from out of town and it took time to notify the family, or they'd been abandoned by their families for becoming Christians, or they simply had no living family members left. But something's unusual. The result of their death was that great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Seeing God's reaction made everyone who heard about it, whether Christians or non-Christians, afraid to try to hide anything from God. The event served to both purify and grow the church. Those who wanted to hide things from God stayed away. And those who were prepared, but while those who were prepared to be totally sincere with him joined the church and must have quickly confessed any hidden sins. This passage is troubling and it raises numerous questions. So let's ask some of those questions and answer them as directly as we can. Our goal is to recognize the eternal truth at work here and then apply it to our lives. First of all, what's going on? Well, I've already said it. Church discipline. God is showing us that he wants to protect his church from the corrupting influence of hypocrisy. What's, what's the problem here? Hypocrisy. That's the issue. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is tending to believe in God. Pardon me, pretending to believe in God. The Greek word primarily meant an actor. And Jesus used this term more, more than anyone else in the New Testament. He warned about the leaven of the Pharisees and said that it's hypocrisy. He went on to explain that hypocrisy is the absence of a proper fear of God. People don't fear God for various reasons. Some don't believe he exists. Some think he lives so far away, somewhere in heaven, he doesn't really know what's going on here in earth, or at least doesn't care. Some think he's powerless to stop things he doesn't like. And some have been convinced his, his, his love means he will tolerate anything a person does without disciplining or judging. That we have quite a bit of in the U.S. What, whatever the, this, the cause, this fearlessness toward God produces in those who choose to be religious a fake form of religion. Oddly enough, some people prefer to be religious even though there is no heart-changing faith inside. Jesus warns that this condition is contagious it's like leaven or yeast. It spreads from one person to another like yeast spreads through bread dough. Hypocrisy doesn't remain one person's problem. It infects other people and damages their relationship with God as well. So it must be stopped when it's recognized. We must be careful to note here that God didn't discipline Ananias and Sapphira because they were struggling with some form of sin in their lives. He disciplined them because Satan filled their hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit. You see this distinction? God is not going after them because they, had a, they, they were sinful. Had Ananias come there and said, uh, Peter, here's the gift. I struggle with lying. Uh, <laughs> uh, here, here is, here is uh, only part of what we sold the land for. He wouldn't be in trouble at all. Peter said, let's, let's have some brothers pray for you. Been as simple as that. The issue... Was, was the willingness to, to the heart. Peter literally says, your heart, why has Satan filled your heart? I want to show you something about that. Satan filled their hearts to lie. This statement reminds us of what was said about Judas. The devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. 
They didn't just misspeak or exaggerate in in the moment. They planned this lie for a calculated reason. And they then fearlessly told it in the midst of a church gathering where the power of the Spirit was strongly at work. If you're going to lie, go to a dead church. (laughs) Really? Yeah. The the same power that is is literally healing healing people, uh, Peter's shadow is passing over people as he walks down those narrow streets. They're putting their sick out into the streets so he could walk close to them. And the, the guy is, 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 is emitting uh, uh, power of the Spirit. You, you just don't want to lie in that climate. <laughs> Go to a dead church, you know. They, don't, they won't know. In a surprisingly, why did God act so aggressively? In a surprisingly short period of time, hypocrisy and, can corrupt the hearts of many and lift the presence of God's power out of the church. See, once you spread that kind of stuff, once you have a lot of hollow hearts who, who, who really don't love the Lord, are hot, there's all kinds of stuff going on, it, it, it lifts the anointing. There, there comes a judgment and the anointing goes off of people. Jesus teaches that Satan will act, actually send such people into a church to damage the harvest. Remember the parable of the, of the, of the tares and the wheat? He, he says that uh, the, 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 this, this fellow had a, a wheat field And then suddenly, uh, in the nighttime, uh, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Uh, Tares look like wheat, but they aren't. And so he was damaging the harvest. He was trying to ruin the man's harvest field by sowing weeds, basically, uh, a fake form of wheat into that thing. And his his servants came and said, Master, uh, some enemy has come and and sown tares, uh, people that look like believers but aren't, among the people. What should we do? Shall we go pluck it out? And he says, no, wait till the, wait till the, till the final judgment. Then the angels will come. They'll pluck them out, and they'll deal with it. Sometimes we take that passage, you know, one will be taken, the other will be left. I sometimes wonder if it's that kind of uh, process, not as positive. They are unknowingly soldiers in a spiritual war. By living a lie leading a divided life, behaving in church one way and at home another. They introduce doubt and lure others to follow in their footsteps. No church is filled with perfect people. And that's not what God requires. All believers are at various stages of learning to deal with their own flesh. Are you? Come on. Yes. So you're not talking. This has nothing to do with some sort of perfectionism. It has nothing to do with everybody having to be perfect. In fact, I think if you've got a church where nobody's, nobody's struggling, you, you have a bad church. I mean, it means you haven't won anybody to Christ in a long time. <laughs> you know. But God does require honesty. First of all, with him, and second, with each other. Those who fearlessly live two lives mustn't be allowed to stay long enough to corrupt others. Why did they die? Well, I said it already. First of all, there was a lot of power present. It just wasn't a good environment to do that in. Secondly, to show what will happen to hypocrites at the judgment. Peter is literally, literally modeling how the Lord will deal with hypocrites in the judgment. Uh, think of the parable of the, of the, of the king's wedding. Uh, all these people are invited and they come and the king comes in to meet his guests and he sees someone without a wedding garment. Remember this? And he says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And where's your wedding garment? And and he had no answer. 
In other words, he's among the, 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 the invited guests. But he has no wedding garment. What do you think a wedding garment would be? It's the righteousness, the clothing of Christ, of faith, that you truly have faith in Christ. So here's somebody who's been a Christian, but who genuinely in their heart has no real faith. Honestly, if you really believe in the Lord, it does put a level of, of, of fear in you. You know, people don't like that word, and we try to undermine it and say, well, it's awe, it's reverence. It's, I mean, it's not really fear. My foot, it isn't. Uh, now, I fear the Lord. There are things that, that I just, I, I don't do because I fear him. Now, here's how it works. I know perfectly well that if I give in to some things, one, the devil hates my guts and will take every advantage uh, to, to hurt me with it. And secondly, I know my father. He is my father. He does love me. And I've also learned that this father spanks. Have you? Uh-huh. He is not a modern father. <laughs> he will arrange to see that it stings. If, if you're rebellious enough, this father of yours will see to it that it stings. You know, you sort of begin to flaunt him, he'll get you caught. It's miraculous. My, my children used to say, you know, it's amazing, Dad. How in the world do you know everything? You know, no matter what they did, we found out. Uh, if they sped, they got, they got a ticket, man. I mean, it was just like that you couldn't get away with anything. Bummer. Well, that's a loving thing, isn't it? God's just watching over you. He's just watching over you. And, and, and you start getting into some bad things. You start getting some attitudes slip in there. He's just going to let it sting if, if you don't repent. And we're going to get to that in a minute. If, if you don't handle it yourself... Your father will let it sting. I fear that. I've had it. And when I say sting, I don't mean to say lightheartedly. It really hurts. He's not cruel, but he doesn't mess around. Even in, 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 in breaking the ambition and the drive and the, and, the, and the perfectionism that I had, man, the depression that I went through. Was, was just the, the most awful sort of thing. It took that to pry that out of me. And am I glad he did it? Yes. Was it horrible? Oh, yeah. So I, I, I fear the Lord. I want to walk carefully with him. I, I want his blessing. I want to stay in that place where he can provide and protect and watch over me. I, I understand there's a place of blessing. We live in it. And I also know that if I mess around, that's going to get lifted. The devil's there to hurt me. My father will discipline me. I do not take it for granted that, hey, I'm under grace. We can all do this. Doesn't matter. It's all forgiven. It may be, yeah. And actually, it may be forgiven, but that doesn't mean, whoo, it hurt. That doesn't mean it doesn't bring trouble. I, I got that picture. Do you have that picture too? So that you ought to, there ought to be in you a, a kind of a, a fear of, of, of sinning, a fear of, of allowing stuff to come in and corrupt, knowing what it's going to do to you. If nothing else, I'll tell you the thing that, one of the things that I think is the most awful is it lifts the anointing off of you. It, it lifts the grace of God for you, off of you as a minister. Uh, and here's how it works. The minute you go to pray for somebody, the minute you go to do something, the, what, what comes to mind? Oh, man, he's not going to answer my prayer in the way I'm behaving. The condemnation, the devil's right there to go, yeah, 
you hypocrite. Isn't he? You heard him? Yeah, he'll always be there. After a while, you get tired of, you, you, you do not want the anointing lifted. You don't want the power of God off your life. You want that blessing. You, you get it and you pay the price for that happily so that you can stay close and blessed and anointed. So Peter is modeling what the Lord will do at, at the judgment. Where's your wedding garment? I'll just mention these. The angels will gather up the tares. Lord, Lord, did we not... Uh, prophesy in your name did we not cast out devils and he says depart from me you who practice what lawlessness there is a teaching out there it's it's on the tv wouldn't you know and 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 it's that that god's grace means you can do anything and he doesn't care well what's that then when you read it don't blame me don't get angry at me i give you the reference what does it say Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. No, no. Being a Christian is, is grace while I'm learning, while I'm growing. He understands my failures. He picks me up. He washes me. But it, doesn't, it is not a license to go on with vile behavior. It is not. And it must be stopped. God gives us all sorts of resources. It does not mean it's okay to just keep going. It means he'll cover you while you're changing. There's a real difference. And thirdly, the process for removing someone from the fellowship of the church, Jesus had established in Matthew 18, but had not apparently been put into practice. The only person that had been removed was Judas Iscariot. Why didn't God keep killing off hypocrites? Well, he knew I was coming and he had mercy. (laughs) He gave the responsibility for discipline to the elders of the church. Disfellowshipping replaced dying. Isn't that good? Hallelujah. How many are glad you're in this era? (laughs) Yeah, disfellowshipping. In other words, there's a church discipline system that would come into play. But God was having to step into this situation and deal and protect his church. How should church discipline be practiced today? It should be done much sooner hopefully long before hypocrisy becomes a settled way of life, and at a much more relational level. If we learn to care for one another in like small groups, our life groups, and accountability meetings, our LTGs, I'll explain that in a second, few people will ever get to that condition where formal disfellowship is is needed. If we live in an atmosphere where we are honest with one another, we'll find our sins are confronted gently with much love and prayer. Those who stubbornly refuse to repent at this level will tend to disfellowship themselves long before that formal stage is reached. Where should... Where should accountability and discipline and and this kind of thing be happening. It should be happening at a much different level, not something where it's come to some horrible state where the elders have to step in and and, and call you on the carpet and and say, what are you doing? You know, this needs to stop. Let's see what you're doing and beg you to repent and where you've come to some malignant stage. It should have been dealt with in an LTG. It should have been dealt with in, in, in a life group. It should have been dealt with with, with friends sitting at, at Starbucks going, hey, hey, bro, what are you doing? Where, where John Wesley affected the change in more people 
than almost anybody in church history. He, he had a method, hence the term Methodist. John Wesley believed, actually believed, that you and I could walk in perfect righteousness in this life. I actually do too, that God has supplied such resources. We can do it. It's, it's possible, and Christ shows us it is possible. But he also believed none of us do. And so he felt that we have to live out those commands in the New Testament. Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, love one another, lay hands on one another, da 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 There's 50 of those things. And he says, how are you going to do that? How are you going to obey those things if you don't get together? And so he, he came up with a system. He called them classes and band meetings. They are nothing more than the LTGs we have. I mean, they're identical. And our life groups. For him, he had these band meetings, and he would have men with men and women with women. And they had four questions. Uh, I, I love reading these questions to you. These are fun. You, you, would have, you would get together once a week, no more than about six, and you would ask yourselves, one another, these questions. First of all, what known sins have you committed since our last meeting? Two, what temptations have you met with? You almost did it. How were you delivered? And fourthly, what have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? Tell us, we'll help you figure it out. Do you hear that? What is that? Raw, open accountability. They're opening their hearts to one another and just confessing their sins to one another. Wesley, Wesley had a, a real clear standard, but it was all washed in a huge atmosphere of grace. They threw people out fairly regularly. In fact, listen to this. It's, it's fun to hear. It, it is. It's just a great story. Listen to this. In 1748, Wesley reduced the Bristol, Bristol, England, the Bristol Society from 900 to 730. In other words, he showed up, interviewed people, and said, you're out. While on other occasions he found no expulsions were necessary, in port cities he often had to exclude some for smuggling and found with time that this discipline bore fruit and reduced smuggling in the area. It's his people doing it. Uh, from one society he expelled 64 persons. Here's the list. Two for cursing, two for habitual Sabbath breaking, 17 for drunkenness, two for selling liquor, Three for quarreling, one for wife beating, three for habitual lying, four for evil speaking, one for idleness, and 29 for, quote, lightness and carelessness of religion. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, f f this one guy notes, few were expelled for strictly religious faults, none for doctrinal differences, while significantly enough, the largest number were excluded for not taking seriously enough their religion. And to take it seriously, always involved in Wesley's view, right conduct to one's neighbor. The question, in exercising di discipline, the question is not, said Wesley, concerning the heart, but the life. And the general tenor of this cannot be hidden without a miracle. Therefore, discipline was possible and necessary. What had happened if you got thrown out? Well, you couldn't come to their feast, and, and, and you couldn't... They're, 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 their, um, their, their, their agape feast. You were not a Methodist. You were put outside. What did you do to get in? You repented. 
And when you repented, they would put you back in for a quarter on a trial basis. And if you passed, you're in. How did it work? It worked amazingly well. They, people's lives really got changed. Would you notice something in this kind of environment? They're holding one another accountable in an atmosphere of grace. They're praying for each other. They're standing with each other. They're, 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 they're growing together. That's where it ought to be happening. In my mind, and, and I, I, where, where there's not small groups, where there's not this kind of life together, and people are basically living their Christian life alone, sort of struggling, and, it's, and, it, and it gets worse and worse and worse and metastasizes to a point where you now have to have some big formal disciplinary event where you've got to call them in. And we do have this and every so often. We will move someone out. Here's what it sounds like. We love you enough to tell you the truth. Please repent. What you're doing, and I always take them, I only do this, by the way, with the, with the menu that Paul supplies in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He lists stuff that he says, if you do this, you won't be part of the resurrection. That's what the thing of inherit the kingdom of God means. He says, so you're not going to be part of the first resurrection. Okay, so, so if you do these things, if you are a practicer of these things while calling yourself a Christian, you won't be part of the first resurrection. So I say to them, I love you. We love you. We want you to repent. But if you won't, we're going to put you outside the fellowship of the church. Not because we don't care about you, but so that you receive the warning that you are not, your spirit's in jeopardy. That, that, that you are not among those being saved right now. You are, you are fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You're playing a game with yourself. And so we're setting you outside so you know your condition. Not because we don't want, love you. And we hope with all our hearts, we'll pray for you. And we hope with all our hearts, you'll repent and come back to us. Do you hear that? Lots of people do come back. Some, some go on quite a long journey. I don't know what gets in some hearts. I don't know why. It's like some people, they lose their fear of God. They get locked in. You'll find that people, when they get into some of these, 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 these sins, it's like their brains change. It's like they aren't the person you once knew. Have you ever met that kind of thing? Where, where, where it's, they've changed. It's like, I, I, who are you? you? You sort of look like the person I knew, but it's like somebody's twin. It's like you're not really the person I used to know. And then oddly enough, when they, when they do repent, when there's, a, when there's a breakthrough, you get your person back. And you all, I, I, in fact, I've said it on occasion. Where were you? What world were you on? What, what planet were you spinning on? It was like you were gone. We missed you. Where were you? It's like waking up from, from a dream or something. Sin has a horrible power to it. It is not to be toyed with. It, it, it scrambles our brains. It makes us think crazy things. And they begin to be hostile toward you. And they, they misunderstand everything you say and do. And they, they, they become belligerent. Sin. Sin. So... Wesley said this, he said, revival cannot continue without discipline. The, 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 the church disciplining is essential, but how should it be done? You and I should be praying and standing with one another. In fact, the most important way is what I have here finally. Paul tells us that the best way of discipline is to, it, to take place is for us to watch 
for attitudes or behaviors in ourselves that violate the clear teaching of God's word, aggrieve the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And then when we find these things, to confess them and repent quickly. In, our, in other words, the best way to be disciplined is to discipline ourselves. Listen to Paul. Why don't you read this out loud with me? But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Did you notice that last phrase? Why are you disciplined by the Lord? So you'll not be condemned along with the Lord. Don't think that grace means you can do anything you want to do. It doesn't. And if you, if you game the system, you will find yourself in serious trouble. I mentioned LTGs. What a, we have this program, and, and we're resuscitating it, even as we speak. We're going to have the, 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 the bookmarks and everything out there. Th- think of this possibility. Inviting another brother or two and saying, would you do an LTG with me or another sister? Just say, how about an LTG? It's so simple. There's this bookmark. And on one side are these questions. And they're, they're really intrusive. Have you, have you been, you know, talks about, have you been honest in all of your financial dealings in your business? Have you, have you been sexually, you know, impure or anything? It just asks the questions. Nobody's the cop. Nobody's going to, nobody's the leader. You just, but what you find, here's what you find, because I've done this for some years with my neighbors. Here's what you find. As you begin to simply be honest, see, that's where it all comes down to, honesty. As you begin to be honest, others, others are honest too, and you discover that everybody's dealing with about the same stuff you are. It's amazing how similar we are. You often think, oh no, I'm really... Uh, Weird. I'm really sick. And, and then you get together and realize, no, we're all weird and sick. No. <laughs> sort of. You discover that as a human, the, the temptations you're facing, the pressures you're facing, the, the ways you react, the flesh that's in you is just like the flesh that's in your neighbor. And what does that bring? It, it mean, you start, you, what you do is it begins to, to rally with one another and say, I'm going to pray with you, brother. We'll be praying for you. And you, you, you learn how much we need each other. This is where the body of Christ is really meant to be disciplining each other. Ultimately, ourselves. I can't make you behave right. You can't make me behave right. Finally, I have to take that responsibility for myself. I have to be a man. I have to be a woman. I have to say, God... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay hold of the, of, the, of the means of grace you've given me. I'm going to walk righteously with the help of your family. Would you say that? I'm going to walk righteously with the help of your family. Don't we need each other? Yes, amen. And all the while... He doesn't expect perfect people. He doesn't expect people that don't sin. In fact, he expects that we will. 
What he wants from us is honesty. And communion is so powerful for honesty. I can come today, confess my sins, lay them on the torn shoulders of my Savior Jesus Christ, give them, as it were, to be nailed to the cross, knowing they are paid for and washed away. If anything invites honesty, that does. I have no fear of confessing my sin. I know that grace covers me. The only thing I must avoid is dishonesty with God, lying and forming two two areas, hiding things. That's my great enemy. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.